During my study intensive last August, uh, I read a number of books. I like to read things that challenge my thinking about any number of things. I read a book that many of you would have heard of, a New York Times bestseller by Timothy Ferris called The Four-Hour Workweek. And um, Ferris has a really well-known podcast. He um, has been called the Superman of, of, of Silicon Valley. He teaches a course at Princeton University. He's a pretty interesting guy. Anyway, he, he wrote something about the uh, power of unrealistic goals. I, I want to read a couple paragraphs to you. I don't agree with all of this, but I find it interesting. And I think probably on the whole do in fact agree. He said, 99% of people in the world are convinced that they are incapable of achieving great things, so they aim for the mediocre. The level of competition is thus fiercest for realistic goals paradoxically making them the most energy and time consuming. It is easier to raise a million dollars than it is a hundred thousand dollars. It is easier to pick up the one perfect 10 in the bar than the five eights. Do not overestimate the competition and underestimate yourself. Unreasonable and unrealistic goals are easier to achieve for yet another reason. Having an unusually large goal is an adrenaline infusion that provides the endurance to overcome the inevitable trials and tribulations that go along with any goal. Realistic goals, goals restricted to the average ambition level, are uninspiring and will only fuel you through the first or second problem. If the potential payoff is mediocre or average, so is your effort. I'll run through walls to get a catamaran trip through the Greek islands, but I might not change my brand of cereal for a weekend trip through Columbus, Ohio. With beautiful, crystal-clear Greek waters and delicious wine on the brain, I'm prepared to do battle for a dream that is worth dreaming. Even though their difficulty of achievement on a scale of 1 to 10 appears to be a 10 and a 2 respectively, Columbus is more likely to fall, fall through. The fishing is best where the fewest go, and the collective insecurity of the world makes it easy for people to hit home runs while everyone else is aiming for base hits there is just less competition for bigger goals. I find it fascinating. Again, there's a lot there that could be commented on one way or another. I, I do think it's interesting. He, I have had some experience with unrealistic goals. Um, uh, he talks about it's easier to pick up the 10 than the, the 110 than the 5 eights. I have had experience with this. Uh, I didn't meet Sharon in a bar, rather, while she was at Bible college. But uh, I will say that I was the only one who had the guts to ask her out. My friends were crazy about her, thought she was the most beautiful thing that ever lived, but they just didn't, they weren't unrealistic enough to give it a shot. Therefore, though she was the best catch in the whole world, uh, just one of us had the, had the guts to actually make the ask. And not only that, but when I looked at her, I said, uh, I'm gonna marry that girl. I didn't know that her brother-in-law was standing there and overheard me. It set me back quite a while, but 36 years later, it still worked out. At some point, <laughs> you just have to be a little, perhaps, ridiculous <laughs> and go after the thing no one else is willing to go after. The point is that sometimes we need to be crazy enough to go after not the easiest thing, but the most unrealistic thing. 
I do believe that unrealistic goals cause people to attempt things they never would otherwise and to achieve things they would never achieve otherwise. Uh, sometime last year, I read Isaacson's wonderful biography of, of Leonardo da Vinci. And one of the things about da Vinci is that he had he fantasized about all kinds of things, many of which didn't come to pass in his lifetime. A flying machine, a helicopter, uh, uh, diving underwater and being able to breathe underwater, which became scuba, all kinds of things. But we know about da Vinci because though he had all these dreams, some of which, or even many of which weren't met, we, he met enough of them for us to, in retrospect, to. To, to appreciate his genius. And Isaacson wrote, this inability to ground his fantasies in reality has generally been regarded as one of Leonardo's major failings. Yet, in order to be a true visionary, one has to be willing to overreach and to fail some of the time. Sometimes fantasies are paths to reality. Another way to say this is that unrealistic goals produce unreasonable people and that unreasonable people go after things reasonable people typically would never go after. Let me read one more thing and then I'll move on. This is George Bernard Shaw who wrote, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. So today I want to talk a little bit about unrealistic goals and unreasonable people. I think that my fault, the title is probably wrong on the life notes. It's unrealistic goals and unreasonable People. Now, thinking about that brought me back to our focus scripture from last week, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7, where Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. As it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Now we took quite a bit of time last week and put that in its proper context in the first three chapters of Genesis. So if you weren't here or didn't hear it and are interested, I hope that you'll pick up last week's message online. But the, 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 the basic idea is that God has prepared things so wonderful, so fantastic for our future that human eyes can't see it, human ears can't hear it, and the human mind can't conceive it, but we can know it by his spirit. Now, if he's prepared things so fantastic that human beings can't comprehend it with our human senses, then is he, I wonder, an unreasonable God who has unrealistic goals for our life? Well, I think not. He is God after all. But I do think that if we travel in his mind, as we're encouraging you to do, and to see what he sees for us, that we may have what appear to others to be unrealistic goals and to be unreasonable people. 
Today, I suggest that, in fact, divine vision does foster unrealistic goals and unreasonable people in the best of ways. So first, this assumption. Uh, Last week I talked at length about the possibilities of foresight. Foresight is insight about our future. There are disciplines like strategic thinking processes that can aid us in developing foresight. And these disciplines are good. But in this series, I'm encouraging us to cultivate the life of the Spirit in a way that allows God to give us divine insight, to see what cannot be seen. We often say hindsight is 2020, but I submit that spiritual foresight is 2020, that we can have spiritual vision. There's this great passage in the Proverbs, familiar to most of us, to most people, whether people of faith or not, they're familiar with the way that this is translated in the King James Version. Proverbs 29:18, where there is no vision, it says, the people perish. The more recent translations have it like this. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. Vision here is in fact divine revelation. The two things are the same in God's mind. Vision is the ability to see something that cannot be seen because it comes by revelation. It has to do with seeing or perceiving with the mind. It's common in today's vernacular to say that vision is the ability to see a preferred future. A vision statement is a description of what a person or organization perceives or envisions for its future. We should have vision statements for our lives, our families, our careers, our businesses, our ministries. Imagine though, if that vision statement is rooted in divine revelation. If if its beginnings are something that comes through insight that can only come through the Spirit revealing to us the things God has prepared that are so fantastic, human eyes can't see it, human ears can't hear it, and the human mind can't conceive it. What difference would that make in your life if your vision for your future was based in divine revelation, insight, foresight? And see, I absolutely believe that we can have spiritual insight about our future. The Apostle Paul prayed uh, for the Ephesians this prayer. He said that he was asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you spiritual wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God I pray, he said, that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the wonderful future he has promised to those he has called. Now, I wish I could just take an hour just to talk about that text, but it's a powerful thing. It's a prayer that God will give us wisdom. Wisdom is an understanding of how things work, that God will give us wisdom and insight so that we can know him better. And then as I taught last week, when we know him better, that's when we come to understand his mind. That's when we come to understand his thoughts, at least in in part, whatever it is he wants to tell us of it. And those thoughts include his vision of the wonderful future that he has for us. We should live with an expectation that that's part of the deal. 
that comes as we focus our attention on knowing God better. We should know what's in his mind for us. Now, last week, I described how my life has been shaped by this insight I had, this divine revelation I had as a teenager that I was to spend my life building a great church in a suburb of New York City. I told that story last week a little bit. But, but my life has been shaped in ways uh, that, that go even before that. So here's a, 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 a story. I mean, these aren't the kind of things that happen every day. I believe God can give us insights in major significant ways in our lives that are life-shaping. And then I believe that God gives us insight into how things should work, into having understanding about things we might not normally understand in a regular basis. I believe we can have insight on things great and small. But here's a, here's a great one. It's that uh, when I was a junior high school kid in Indianapolis, Indiana, and my dad was about 35 years old, uh, my dad, who was a successful businessman, uh, very engaged in the life of his local church, uh, leading a, a family that in many ways uh, was idyllic, a suburb of Indianapolis and a nice home and a uh, pool in the backyard and a white picket fence across the street from the golf course. Nice, nice life we had. My dad came home one day from work very excited and called the family, as I remember, we didn't even make it past the, 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 the foyer in our house, called the family together and he said, listen, I was just driving my car down the road at such and such a place and he said, out of apparently nowhere, I believe that God spoke to me and he gave me a revelation that about our future as a family, and I believe that God has called me to leave the business world and to enter into full-time, as, as he would have said it, vocational ministry, and we are gonna sell our home and everything we have, and we're gonna start traveling from church to church as a family, and I'm gonna be preaching in local churches. In that days, that wasn't uncommon for there to be itinerant evangelists who would travel from church to church and do meetings that would last four or five nights, and they were called revivals, so we have a slot for that that's kind of not that way today. Anyway, imagine you're a junior high school student, pretty nice little life, and your dad walks in flushed with excitement and says, God just spoke to me and we're going to sell everything and we're going to, well, the fact is that after several years of preparation, that's exactly what we did. I mean, one reason perhaps I'm such an unreasonable man is I come from a line of unreasonable men. And we sold everything and we bought a 39 foot fifth wheel trailer and that's what we lived in. Uh, that's what I lived in until uh, the time came for me to leave home. And uh, that's what my parents lived in for about the next 10 years. And my dad had an incredibly successful run doing exactly what he felt like God broke into his life and said to him that day in the car. Now again, don't expect that kind of experience every day. But, you know, my dad would have talked maybe about two or three experiences like that. Hi, dad and mom, by the way, they watch every week. And my life has been shaped because my dad heard the voice of God and then in concert with the local church we were in who sent us off, you know, so that, that's one of the reasons I'm standing here today. I see this is why I want people to be able to believe that God can break into our lives and he can show us things about our future that 
that truly are transformative. Now, everybody doesn't need a story as dramatic as that, but you know, I've got a few of them, uh, and, and, it may, and again, I wanna be very careful. It may seem like something like that happens to me once a year, it doesn't. There are a handful of times in a lifetime where something that significant has happened, but it has. And it has become the foundation of me having a sense of what my life was supposed to be about. And I've gone after those things based on this sense of spiritual insight where God says, this is the wonderful future that I have for you. I took too long telling that story. Let me tell you the rest of this quickly. Insight often comes to a person while their mind isn't focused on gaining insight. However, it does come to focused people. So last week I talked about how a lot of times insights will come to us not while we're you know, straining on getting the insight, which I'm concerned a sermon series like this will cause somebody to wanna to do, but that in fact when we're straining to gain insight, we have what the literature calls uh, uh, clenched minds, and it's for some reason alpha rays aren't able to travel through our brain in a way like they should. And this is why a lot of times in a warm shower or early in the morning when our brains are kinda of disorganized, or for me frankly, a lot of times when I'm praying and focused on God, all of a sudden I'll have insight about something, I wasn't necessarily thinking about it, but it wasn't that I haven't been thinking. It wasn't that I haven't been disciplined. The insight came to my dad, though he wasn't thinking about vocational ministry and he was driving his car down the road. He'd spent a lifetime serving God, spending time in prayer, a weekly fast day, understanding, reading God's word, serving in the local church. There was a context of a focused life that allowed in that in that framework for insight to come. So it is, you know, a lot of writers will, will read about, uh, will write about how, that, um, how that, uh, that, that focus provides the framework for flow. That the difference a lot of times between a very talented and gifted person who has great success and a very talented and gifted person who doesn't is that the, that's one of them is willing to put forth disciplined effort, and people like Malcolm Gladwell will talk about the magic number of 10,000 hours of working on a thing, gives one mastery of a thing. You can read about that in his book, Outliers, if I remember correctly. And when someone has mastery of a thing, they enter this thing called flow. It's why a really great basketball player who has an unbelievable game, they're not thinking while they're in the moment about exactly how the jump shot should be taken. They're in the flow. But it's not that they haven't thought about it. They've spent 10,000 plus hours working on that thing. I'm simply saying that in this case, as it comes to receiving divine insight, we, it, it, it's not that we don't focus, it's just that we focus on the right thing. And the right thing to focus on isn't actually a thing, it's a person, it's God. When we are focused on our relationship with God, insight will come. Don't get the cart before the horse. It's not about, I want insight, I've gotta have insight. Oh man, I want a story to tell. Like pastor tells these two or three stories over and over and over over the years. I want a story like that. It's that that's not going to get. It's it's. I want to know God. See Ephesians 1:17. Paul said, "I'm asking God that He will give you wisdom and spiritual insight, so that you can grow in your knowledge of Him. Then your heart will be flooded with light." and you will see the wonderful future he's called you to. So on one hand, we're not focused on the insight, but we are focused. 
We're focused on our life with God. And when we focus on our life with God, that's when he's able to surface things into our mind that are in his mind as the Holy Spirit reveals to us the things he's planned for us that are greater than eyes can see, ears can hear, and the human mind can conceive. So, thank you, Allison, for starting the clap. I appreciate it. I, I notice. I notice these things. So, and then I'll pick this part up next week. When we see our preferred future, then we have to go to work empowered by the Holy Spirit to actualize our future. And that, that's, we'll pick that up, Lord willing, next week. Now let me kind of take this then into, back into the kind of the bigger picture that I started introducing last week from 1 Corinthians. And it's this, I have really long statements on the life notes this week, here's one of them. A secret to divine vision, having unrealistic goals and being an unreasonable person in a God-inspired sort of way is to be joined to a church with unrealistic goals and which is full of unreasonable people. So God's dreams for individuals are always connected to his dreams for his world, and his dreams are primarily fulfilled through the church and local churches. Here's an important observation and one of my greatest joys. It's that I don't think that a spiritual leader, and I think this is true of leadership in general, so let's just talk about leadership. I don't think that a leader has to make a decision between helping the people in an organization dream and achieve their goals and helping the organization dream and achieve its goals. And as a local church, one of the things that I've noticed over the years, as we get up every day to inspire people to the life God dreams for them, as we spread his love in ever-widening circles, one of the things I've noticed is that as, as the church succeeds, it, it leaks into the lives of the people who are a part of that corporate reality. And, as, and, and, and it helps them succeed, to think in ways they wouldn't typically think about, to ha have unrealistic goals, to be more unreasonable people, to go after things in their lives because there's something about being in an organization and specifically scripturally in a church that has that kind of vision. And conversely, as people succeed in their lives and go after their dreams and become more and more successful, success being defined find is living the life God dreamed for you, whatever that is, they bring, they then, who they are influences the church. And it's like, as the church gets bigger, and I'm not talking about numbers or physical size, as the church gets bigger inside in terms of its vision and trying to do the works of Jesus in this world and spreading God's love, the people get bigger. And as the people get bigger, they bring that back into the reality of who all of us are together, and the church gets bigger. Again, bigger is not numbers in this case. Bigger is about trying to figure out what the big thing God's called us to and go, going after that thing. See, the promise of 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 10, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, the future God's called for you, can only be understood in the context of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And what he was writing about when he wrote to the Corinthians was primarily about their relationships with one another. 
And they, he, in that local church, they, they were having issues with each other. There was division, there was factionalism. And Paul is essentially writing them saying, this can't be, and by the way, if things are like this, it's gonna thwart you being able to see what God sees for your future. So, you know, again, I talked through this at length last week, but I wanna relocate ourselves here. First Corinthians 1.10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. He's calling them to a united vision. What is more than one vision? Again, it's division. He's calling them to a united vision and there's a section from 1 Corinthians 1.10 through the end of chapter three where he's making this point, and it's in that context that he says, we declare God's wisdom, that God destined for our glory before time began, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, God's prepared that for us. God reveals it to us by a spirit. But then he says, and this is a crushing blow, brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you were still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere human beings? So, so, so in, in other words, He's, he's saying, there are these wonderful things that God wants to show you about your life, but I, I, now, I, now that I said it, I can't talk to you about it because your relationships with each other in the local church are full of quarreling and jealousy and strife. You don't have a united vision. You're not all working together towards the same end. But in fact, there's division, and the division is gonna keep you from being able to reach your God-destined future. Now, the, the flip side of that, I think, then would be, and this is now more ap applicable to TLCC, where, by God's grace, we don't have division or factionalism or disunity, and where we are commonly united around the same vision. So the, so, so the flip side of this should be that if there is a united vision, and if people properly understand their relationships to one another in the context of the church, that it should release the potential of this divine revelation about our future that both the church can work towards together and that influences people in the way that they're going after their lives on a day-to-day -day basis. Does that make sense? So, so the power of a united vision in this context in a local church influence the seeing ability of every person in it. And uh, I, I believe this is true regardless what local church you're committed to, by the way. It's not about, in this case, this isn't specific or, or, or unique, I should say, to TLCC. This would be true of any local church that you're committed to, assuming that that local church has a God-inspired and God-sized vision. That, that united vision will influence your vision and your vision will influence it. And, and it works together that way, and it's meant to. And some folks don't understand that part of their blockage in their life, if they're experiencing blockage, has as much to do with the way they're related or not related to, to the rest of the body of Christ, because when we're not properly connected, it's hard for the head to communicate its thoughts to the body. Now, one of the things that, that we've experienced over the years is that, that 
that, when, that God has blessed this church with insight about our future in the past, and we believe that God has given us insight about our future in the present. So, you know, our story is full of apparently unrealistic goals and unreasonable people. You know, again, we have a handful of stories over the last 28 years where, where God has spoken to us in some significant way and it's shaped our future. You know, an example of that, an obvious example of that, and one that people can see and grasp is the day that I was reading a newspaper article and um, I read an article about this property that had been purchased by a developer on Northfield Avenue here in West Orange. And when I read, was reading that article, I had one of those, again, I don't want to overstate this, it doesn't happen to me every day, but I had one of those big divine revelation insights. I read that article and I knew this property was ours. I was as sure of it as I could possibly be. Now it was insane for a lot of reasons. And, but, but since that time, we've moved from a storefront property between a liquor store and a pub on just off of Main Street in West Orange, an 11,000 square foot building. I think we paid, I don't remember, I think we paid $380,000 for that building. We've moved from that, which is quite a lump, jump, to this. You know, I think that this property was just appraised for like $14 million. I don't normally talk about money and figures in that way here, but I just want to give you a sense that when that insight came to me, it was so ridiculous. It was crazy. It was nuts. But when I brought it first to the board and the elders and our staff team and then to the congregation. The congregation, ultimately, we, we, we walked together in this, are we going to do this or not? The congregation ended up voting unanimously to pursue this crazy goal. And they knew that part of the deal was, this means we're going to have to sacrifice together. This means we're going to have to give to it. It means it's going to take a while. It means, you know, because we're going to make this large of a jump, we're going to be stuck in a building that's too small for us for a while because it's going to take a while to figure this out. It was very, very complicated for all kinds of reasons I won't go into right now. But what happens is when a, when a, when a church is working together towards some sense of divine insight. And it doesn't mean we understand these things perfectly. We wouldn't have done this just because I had a sense of revelation. I'm accountable ultimately to the board, to the elders, and to the congregation. So I don't make a decision like that by myself. But it began with a sense of divine insight and then over time, the entire congregation in a secret ballot vote said, we agree God's called us to do this. That's a powerful thing. And we were all unreasonable together for the 10 crazy, difficult years it took to get from there to here. I wish I had time to tell the whole story, but, but I don't. Um, but God's been so graceful to us. But that kind of united vision then leaks onto the people who are a part of it, and it's like as we're making this journey towards craziness that God's called us to, 
the, so many people have story after story after story. I can start pointing out people right here. I remember when Darlene Hill walked up to me one day, hi Darlene, out in the lobby and said, I think God's called me to leave my present career and go back to school because my real calling is X, Y, Z. And I watched her over the course of two or three or four years make that, you guys made tremendous sacrifices in order to be able to do that. Totally unrealistic when you told me that. It's like, Darlene, are you crazy? You have a phenomenal job. Why would you ever do that? I didn't say that to you, but that's part. Are you crazy how this is going to impact your family and all this kind of stuff? But you were just unreasonable enough. But where, where, where were you learning this? You were learning this from us. You were doing that in response to the preaching, the teaching here. And where are we learning this? We're learning it from you. There's this beautiful thing that starts to happen. That's why last week when we brought these vision post-it notes up and put it here on this vision wall behind us. The individual visions are understood in this larger picture. I'm not sure how well you can see the pictures, but of who we are together. There's a united vision that releases the ability for insight to come, not just to who we are together, but to who we are as individuals. And now we're in the process. We've not been talking about it a lot lately, but we're getting ready. We're starting to really start, do a lot of real work around this right now. We're in the process now of the next great big miraculous, uh, uh, I forget what we called it, BMAC, big miraculous audacious goal that we announced at the end of 2017. And this church rallied around with a huge offering to, to get the thing started, which it has started. Um, we had a two-day retreat this week uh, with, the, with the, our staff leadership team just really starting to say, okay, we've got to get real now about the, the strategic plan that has to be in place for this to happen. And this is something we'll be talking to other leaders about in coming weeks. But, but we call it Vision 2025. Vision 2025 is TLCC times five equals 10K by 2025. Vision 2025 is TLCC times five equals 10K by 2025. This was saying that we are believing. And now there's a whole theological, biblical underpinning to this as that, that I describe when, when I announced this goal. There was a lot of thought and meetings and cooperative thinking around this. Trust that, and by the way, if you're interested in hearing some more of that thinking, you can go back and look at a series that we did in, in the end of 2017 called Great, Seven Steps to the Miraculous, and you can hear me spend about a half hour explaining how we came up with this formulation. But Vision 2025, times is TLCC times five. We're saying by God's grace, we're going to take our average weekend, uh, our average Easter attendance times five. And our tent Easter attendance this, this year was about right at 3000 people. We're going to take that times five by 2025. We're going to believe for an audience. We're going to believe for an audience with whom we're sharing the gospel of more than 10,000 people. And we're also going to multiply the, the, the West Orange campus by four other campuses where we'll have five campuses by 2025. We launched our first multi-site campus in um, Paramus 
hi everybody again in Paramus, and that, that is really starting to gain some momentum there. It took us a while, but we're starting to gain some momentum. We've had some wonderful people involved in launching it and helping it get to where it is right now. And we have three more campuses to launch by Vision 2025. This isn't the time to get into the details all of, of all of that. I'm just gonna say that part of what you're gonna be hearing from us, if you're a part of this church, is we have a vision, and you may think, well, uh, that's nice. Why does that matter for me? What I'm trying to tell you is it does matter for you because there's something powerful that happens. When you get involved in a united vision in a local church that's going after what, what we believe God has called us to, that then impacts your ability to hear what God wants to say to you about your life that's so great that no eye can see, no ear can hear, no, just, I don't, the, the, you cannot do Christianity by yourself. I'm really feeling strongly at, during this season to emphasize how important it is to us and to you that you are connected to what God is doing through all of us and to understand that will impact what God will do in you. This is how God designed the local church to work. Another way of saying this is being joined to the body of Christ will help you actualize your God dream future and will help all of us actualize ours. Some of you are probably not familiar, don't understand what we mean when we talk about the body of Christ. It's kind of inside baseball Christianese. But this is an important understanding in the New Testament, important enough that I'm gonna take a few minutes around and this is how we're, we're gonna think about this when we do communion here in a few minutes. So one of the ways that the church universal and local churches are described in the New Testament is as the body of Christ. The universal church is described this way, who all of us are together. God's church isn't obviously just TLCC, it's God's people everywhere. It's local churches, all of us together forming one great church all over the world through all of time. It's, it exists in the invisible world, those who've gone before us, it exists here in the physical world. But Ephesians 3, 6, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body. But then, local churches are also described as the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Paul to the Corinthians, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. The idea of the body of Christ is that together we are the flesh and blood of Jesus in the world. Not any one of us, that would be a mental illness to consider yourself to be the flesh and blood of Jesus. But all of us together make up the flesh and blood of Jesus. We are his physicality in the world. Um, Ephesians 5.30 tells us, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. We're also taught that Jesus is the head of the body and th that we're to grow together so that we can do his work on the earth. We will, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So he's the head, and in order to communicate to any of us who are members of this body, we have to be connected with each other. God has decided to do what he's going to do in this world through the church. 
Dorothy Sayers talks about the three humiliations of God. She says the first humiliation was the incarnation. God allows himself to be manifest in a manger, essentially. God, in all of his glory, is thus humiliated. Secondly, he was humiliated on the cross when he paid the penalty for the sins of the world. But Dorothy Sayers, the great thinker and author, said that the third humiliation is God has reduced himself into the body of Christ in the world, that he's decided to do what he's going to do in the world through us. Now, every person who believes in Jesus is called to be a member of his body. The word member is really important. A member in the New Testament, the word member in the New Testament literally means a limb of the body. And what we're taught in the New Testament is is each of us have a role to play in the body of Christ. We are are members. We We are limbs in the body. Now, it's more than limbs because some, well, let's look at this famous passage. Again, this is written to the church in Corinth in the context of everything else we've been talking about here. He's talking to them about who they're supposed to be to one another and how they're supposed to be united. And he says, he's still, you know, he started in 1 Corinthians 1.10, one mind, one vision. 12 chapters later, he's still hammering away at it. For as the, as the body is one, and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? Do you understand? He's saying everybody has a role to play. One of you is an eye, one of you is an ear, one of you is a little finger, one of you is a fingernail, one of you is a, 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 the liver, one of you. Everybody has a role to play to make up the physicality of Jesus or the body of Christ in the earth. God has set the members, verse 18, each one of them in the body just as he pleased. There are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be the weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty. I wish I had time to really teach through all of this, but sometimes, you know, a liver is not beautiful, but it's more important than, well, even an eye. Just wherever one's placed in the body, their role is considered to be important. There, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you, he says to the people in Corinth, are the body of Christ and members individually. Do you see how all this works together now? Every member then must be intentionally joined to the body so that each member and the entire body can do what God designed each of us for and all of us for. What good is a hand or an eye without its being properly connected to the rest of the body? So members of the church are inextricably linked to one another. In our culture, there is an individualism that causes people to want to be able to say, I don't need you. But what we're taught in the body of Christ is countercultural, because what we're supposed to say is, I need you. Who do I need? I need the other members of the body, not just because I'm the pastor. 
You need to look around this room at these other people who are members of this body, whether formally members or joined to it through the spirit, and you need to understand you need them and they need you and we all need each other. For us to live the life God dreamed for us as individuals, all of us together must be on the same path, working together, living out a united vision. Our relationship to the church isn't tangential. It's not, it would be nice maybe if I hang out with somebody in the church or spend time with people in church and maybe I'll get there, maybe I won't. That's not, not even close, not even close to what, how God designed us to be able to reach our own individual potential. I need you to be who God made me to be. I see a look in a lot of people's eyes that said, okay, we get the point, what's the next point? Well. And another thing that, that we're told then is when one member of the body succeeds, we all succeed. When you see somebody in this church having success in their life, you're succeeding. And we're also told when one member of the body suffers, we all suffer. This is so beautiful. We are inextricably linked to one another. Now, I'll close with this. Two things that we're emphasizing right now in light of this whole thing is right now we're coming back to a real strong emphasis on church membership. We really believe, and we've, been, we've done a rethink on this in the last six months or a year where we haven't been emphasizing this to the extent that we have in the past. We've done a rethink around this. How important is this idea of church membership? Some churches don't have formal membership. You just, if you're ever given the offering, you're on the list and, you know, but, but here, We've come back again to saying more than ever, doubling down on this idea, that we think it's important for people to, to confess what scripture already says. I am a member of this church. That doesn't, it's not being a member like Costco has a membership. It doesn't mean you get discounts on, it means the opposite in fact. It means you contribute to who we are. It means you sacrifice for who we are. It means you find your role to play here and understand how important you are to us. I believe that every believer, every person who follows Jesus all over this world needs to find a local church and commit to that local church in whatever way that local church is designed there, whatever they call it. Here we, we just, we call it membership and we do it because of the scriptures I just read to you. And we, uh, we've, we've developed something, we've been kind of beta testing it and, and uh, we're rolling it out a little further during this season where, where we're allowing people who wanna explore the possibility of becoming members at TLCC to take a very simple online course, four sessions. I think the average length of the sessions is like 20 minutes. I do one of the sessions, which means there's one 40 minute session and three like eight or nine minute sessions. That's the truth. Sorry. Uh, I'm sorry I have so much to say. Forgive me, all right? Um, 
And, and now we've, we're giving people the opportunity to actually be able to sign the membership covenant online so as to not wait for a once every three or four month thing to sign the membership covenant. But then we're gonna, we're gonna have, we're gonna, we're gonna go all in for this this year. We're gonna have a big celebration several times this year on a Sunday in our Sunday services where we welcome new members into our church in a way that won't embarrass you if you feel awkward. But, but we're really excited about this. And we're encouraging, we have so many beautiful people, so many beautiful people, so many of you who've been coming around TLCC, you now, you have a sense of who we are. You, you know that this is your church. It's time for you to take the step to membership. Listen, let me say this to you. We need you to get joined to us and you need us. And when you get joined to us, all of a sudden it unleashes potential in us and in you. I've made my point, I think. So I'm on your connection card. Under the next steps, you can just note the connection card where if you'd like to get a, uh, an email this week that has this, or what we call Welcome to the Life course in it, just note it on the connection card. You'll get it this week. And on February 9th, we're gonna have a beautiful, uh, probably eight or 10 minute uh, slot in our Sunday celebrations where the entire congregation gets to look at our new members. I don't know if, I don't, some of you just, I'm not gonna do that. Somehow or another, in an appropriate way, we're gonna welcome new members into our church because we are members one of another. And then the other thing we're emphasizing, and I'll probably talk a little bit more about this next week, is in order to really be connected into a local church, you, it's important that it's not just about showing up on a Sunday morning two or three times a month. You need to find relationships that are meaningful and small groups, what we call life groups, and life teams, which are teams where people serve together and build community together, is the key way that happens at TLCC. I don't want you just to have a high, I don't remember your name relationship with, you know, a thousand people. At some point, we want you to be in a, to find the benefits of getting to know other members in the church in a way that, that really can impact your life and where you can impact their lives. And so we're, we're really encouraging people to, to get in a life group. Life means life in a family environment in a group or team context. And we are also asking so many of our TLCC people, we need more groups, which means we need more leaders. So we're encouraging people who've not been in a group to get in a group, but we're also saying to a whole lot of people, we need you to lead a group. And if you have any interest in that whatsoever, we need a number of you beautiful TLCC people to step up to leading a group. Some of you've led groups in the past, and, and, and for whatever reason, probably good reasons, haven't for a while, we need you to step up to leading small groups so that we can really do a better job at really being the church to one another, okay? All right, so we're gonna see, receive communion here. In Paramus, I'm gonna turn it over to Pastor Jason Pettibone, who's gonna lead you in communion there. Can we stand together? Yeah.